For some reason, you're listening to the eighth episode of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. A lot of this is about fundamentalist Christianity going wrong, but it is not an attack on faith. This is about depression. Each episode is me explaining what was going on in my life that occasioned the writing of a song from my concept album, The Story of Peter Gray. I'll continue for the two of you. Episode 8, In the Hole. I suppose I should change the title of this song lest someone think it's about prison, maybe even personal finances. Don't think I will, though. This song was written when I'd been writing songs for a couple of years and branched out a bit. Before, the songs were mostly telling a story or meant to be a snapshot of a moment, concept, or feeling, conveying it with imagery and so on. But then I started thinking about putting the songs together into an album, and I started to get more and more cinematic about the lyrics. By that, I guess I mean I started to make songs that described a symbolic landscape that represented my inner emotional landscape. The feeling mainly put forward in this song was of being old enough to feel like life had kind of formed into a series of ever-repeating patterns, and that so had I, and that I was therefore trapped in them. Of course, in my teens and earlier twenties, I had known what it was like to feel that I'd gotten for an afternoon or a couple of days trapped in a situation, mood, or pattern. Once I got a few years older, I was really feeling like I was getting trapped in an adult self, in an adult life. It was like the concrete had set. Suddenly, there is less about church and parents and peers in the words, and a whole lot more about being trapped alone with new responsibilities like rent and jobs to afford it and so on. One verse is most directly inspired by the worst place I lived at while at university. Each year at university, I kept a job back home in the town I grew up in and got picked up and dropped off by my parents on weekends. Things got more intense when I started to live in the city for the whole school year, alone almost all of the time. To save money, I always rented cheap rooms in rooming houses. Private bedrooms, but shared kitchen and bathroom. My first year, the room barely had enough space for my bed and a chair, but I formed a bond with the other three students who were living in the same rooming house, and we shared the bathroom and kitchen, so I had the experience of hanging out for the first time with non-church, non-high school people I had never known before. It was a new start. High school bullying and drama, along with church-style competitive piety, just weren't a thing there. I could be whoever I wanted. I had a portable tape recorder, and a guy who lived there named Pete and I used to mess around with it and my new Sears catalog electric guitar. I didn't really know how to play. What you need when you don't know how to play is to be around someone playing better than you can so you can pick up a lot of it by osmosis. Pete taught me how to play power chords and other guitar lore and how to talk like Kermit the Frog. because Michael's got something for you. Tell you what it is. He also helped me get over much of my church-taught superstition about rock music being satanic music created by Satanists to make everyone in the world into Satanists. Okay, so now what you got for 
Nobody's gonna take my car, we're gonna raise it to the band. Weekends, it was back to the youth group stuff, parents, and church, though. And it's the world that comes in. Satan makes sure of it. And thoughts of man. Holidays might involve going to a teen-attended Bible conference, youth camp, or young people's weekend of some kind. Sometimes that's the only thing that will bring me to my senses if I've been insisting on my way and my will. I was completely back to my usual old routines each summer, though, when the school year was over, so my moving out phase was pretty gentle, and usually only Monday through Thursday. It was all new, and it was often interesting. The depression mainly took a back seat, as I was occupied with new things so much. A whole lot of teen pressures were gone, and adults had almost nothing to say in my life suddenly, during the week at least. At a church, you're never too old for that stuff, though. Look at that young man. He's going to fall out the window if he's not careful. I'm not passing any judgment. Our brother said that yesterday in his comments. I'm not passing any judgment on anything, but only setting before us these things that we have to consider. Someone whom you feel is in danger of a fall. I could be whoever I wanted to be. I didn't experiment too much in the city, though. Didn't want to lose my seat in the non-church of my birth, even though it was in the middle of blowing up. It was hard to look away from the road accident that was going on there. So I didn't go to bars, drink a beer, or go to the movies, or live music, or anything like that while I was living in the city and going to university. And I usually went out to weeknight church while living in the city. And it wasn't the church I grew up attending, but a neighboring one from the same branch of Plymouth Brethren. A bigger, more influential one, though the one that ended up being the global epicenter of our group's big split. I was there while that was happening. It was like this. Stuff was going on and being said at church all the time that moved it closer to the split, kept you on the edge of your pew to hear who was passively aggressively dissing whom while maintaining full deniability and ostensibly merely vivisecting the book of Revelation or something each week. In a day of departure and ruin and confusion, as we have in Christendom today. I was also deeply in love with a woman in her mid-twenties who was poised to fly the coop as to our church when the stuff went down. The clock was, for many things, ticking. My second year at university was much like my first, only I lost touch with my rooming house roommates from the year before and didn't really click with the people in the new rooming house. Most were not students, and many were definitely a bit cray-cray. My last year of university was tough. I started working in the city, in a mall on the outskirts of Ottawa during the Christmas final essays and exam season at Radio Shack, selling batteries, computers, remote-controlled cars, and motorized pencil sharpeners. A Christmas gift from Radio Shack. Before Christmas, they claimed they were bored. But then I found Radio Shack's incredible selection of electronic games. I had a room in a rooming house again. It was no bigger than the tiny one I'd spent my weeks in during my first year of school. The rooming house itself wasn't physically dingier than my previous accommodations had been, but the other people living there very decidedly were. I found syringes in the communal toilets sometimes. Someone got stabbed uptown and left bloody handprints on the handrail leading upstairs when they returned home. A plain-faced stripper lived above me and had shouting matches with her boyfriend, who was also a stripper. He kicked in all the drywall and smashed the furniture up there in the wee hours of the morning 
while I was downstairs trying to sleep after staying up late studying for a morning exam after working an evening shift in the mall and taking the bus home late. My room got broken into twice and most of my stuff stolen, almost certainly so other people living in the same building could buy hard drugs. I didn't have much, but now most of it was gone. So much being awakened in the middle of the night by crashing sounds, loud music, and shouting. Sometimes having one's door to the hall and the bathroom blocked by passed out people who either lived there or very much didn't. I spent the time I should have used finishing up my terms at school and then home for the holidays alone in the city, working in the shopping mall right up to and right after Christmas. Bah humbug. And then Radio Shack laid us all off once the Christmas season was over, so I couldn't afford rent anymore, nor replace what had been stolen. I had no social life at all. The church was getting more and more passive-aggressive as the power struggle heated up to boiling. The woman I had a crush on had a crush on someone not from our church who was married. The school year and my undergraduate career ended with me moving back in with my folks, jobless, having had much of my stuff stolen, and firmly believing that I had failed many of my classes, given how much class I'd missed working at the job that eventually laid me off and how little effort I'd put in. Depression had returned with a vengeance that school year, and once I was laid off especially, I often stayed in bed all day instead of going to class or doing schoolwork. There was nothing and no one to interrupt this depression most weeks. So I finished my degree, moved in with my folks, thinking I'd fail all my classes but didn't, then tried to get into teacher's college to pursue my career but didn't, and then didn't know what to do with my life. They'd not been accepting many new teacher candidates at all, and certainly not ones with lackluster grades and no experience teaching, for example, English in Korea, or starting and running a shelter for battered women or anything like that on my resume. Our church finally blew up in all of our faces, and my family stayed with the conservative traditional side. Almost everyone, young or middle-aged, left our group, and I didn't see most of them again. It was like I'd always done time with these people, and they'd been moved to a different prison. The side that left had pretty much all of the youth camps and the pretty young women, and I knew that fraternizing with our former brethren, brothers, and sisters would likely result in my getting kicked out of my group, which was not just like a church is to most people, but was my birth culture in the way Judaism, Buddhism, or Islam are to some. You can get kicked out of Islam. You can get kicked out of Orthodox Judaism. You can get kicked out of Jehovah's Witness. You can get kicked out of Plymouth Brethren. I lived in terror of this. I did volunteer work in elementary schools and with the physically and developmentally handicapped trying to get some relevant experience on my resume so I could apply to teacher's college again once I'd saved up for it. This gave me my first real look into how much pretended and deemed success goes on in education, whether with disabled or able-minded students. In the middle of all of this, I got approached, and soon hired, to work with local evangelicals who wanted their kids to do the Abeka homeschool curriculum in a little Christian school, supervised by near teachers like me. They wouldn't need to pay much. This was my first experience, really working with and connecting with mainstream church Christians who were, in theory, incredibly freer than our own group. I wanted to know everything. It went like this. They checked to make sure I wasn't too strict a Christian to suit them. They knew about Plymouth Brethren people, all right. I'd been assured when I was hired that they were not raising their kids in a goldfish bowl like the one I'd been raised in, judging what bits of the world they could see floating past them outside that glass container. No, they said. They were helping their kids put the evil, corrupt world under a microscope. I soon saw that this was very, very clearly self-delusion. 
They soon decided, once the year had gotten started, that I wasn't clear on my role in helping them raise organic, homegrown, unvaccinated, pop culture-free, sugar-free Christian kids. After a month, they canceled school for the day and summoned me to present myself, just like my father had been summoned to present himself for those other guys, sat me down, and just like the other guys had done with him, the guys who had a problem with me, and not the guys who didn't, presented me with a giant list of pretty trivial things, with nothing major on the list at all, and sent me packing under a cloud. One of my charges was having had a Mad Magazine in my classroom. Another was having a Wayne's World button. Trouble was, the kids liked those, and their parents didn't like them liking them. Denied! And an admission that I liked them was taken as condoning corrupting influences. It was like I was handing out bottles of vodka to children. We had an overnight field trip in the first month, and I was the only male chaperone. When a young teen asked if he could sneak off to meet up with a girl at the school he was trying to make his girlfriend, I told him no. My job was to chaperone, and he was asking me to do the very opposite of my job. He was persistent, so I said that after the little ones had fallen asleep, if he and she wanted to briefly take a chaperoned walk around the building in which everyone was sleeping, I would supervise that chaperoned walk. So we did. The kids quieted. He and I went outside, and she showed up, and I let them walk a couple of laps with me trailing a couple of yards behind to give them some private conversation but make sure no hanky-panky was going on, nor could accusations of that nature be leveled against them later. When I went back in, the little boys were making noise, and so a female chaperone had come over and didn't understand what I'd been doing chaperoning this walk. I told her, but she seemed to think that I was trying to woo the 15-year-old girl myself, me being 22 years old. I was not, but Christians. Another big problem that they had was the time I expressed discomfort informing on my students to their parents when, rumor had it, one of their kids had at recess expressed the opinion that a Christian school was a violation of the proper separation between church and state. I told Matthew's parent that I couldn't form a relationship of trust and have open discussions in class if kids knew I was reporting their random unorthodox thoughts and feelings to their parents each day. Anyway, I was done there, and certainly couldn't put it on my resume under relevant teaching experience, though a month of it had very much convinced me that teaching was something I could really do. Compared to me, my sister always seemed to be happy, pretty, and popular, and was very into school events, sports, and youth group activities. Right before the worldwide split, her perfect brethren boyfriend turned out to be a multiple diagnosis psychopath over the first year of her dating him, though he was functional enough at that brief point in his life to be starting med school. When she dumped him, he took her to a graveyard. Then he tried to abduct her. Then he started stalking her at school and at work. I eventually needed to contact the police and arrange protection from this guy for my sister. My dad, it turned out, was all bark and no bite when it came to protecting his family from church people and their crazy kids. He'd been able to protect us from television and movies all right back in the day, though in the intervening time he'd taken to sitting depressed all evening, slumped in front of an easily hidden TV of his own. My sister's ex has gone on to spend most of the rest of his life in institutions. I'd been confiding about the restraining order, provincial police thing our family had been through, to one of the soon-to-become-brethren-like men as the division approached. Then the split happened, and I didn't see him anymore, of course. Around the time the Christian homeschool school and I parted ways, he spread around that I'd been let go from the school because I was gay and therefore a pedophile, obviously. This was then generally believed by the Christian community, though I knew I was neither. 
It all came from the fact that I'd said his gay brother-in-law seemed like a nice guy. He'd responded, nice, nice guy, guy for a f***. From my lack of natural disgust and homophobia about his brother-in-law, the guy would never believe that I was anything but very, very gay thereafter and not to be trusted around children, and he told people so. The fact that I claimed to be straight and have crushes on various women was just more proof as far as he was concerned. I knew there was a history of molestation in this guy's peripheral family and eventually in his immediate family as well. But I didn't spread this around, didn't want to be like him. In aid of that, I do not name him here, nor give more details than are necessary to tell the story. The Christian, but not too Christian, homeschool school itself collapsed under the weight of its own disorganization, drama, and general Christianity before that year was out, and the kids returned to their homes to be homeschooled there, or to conventional schools, where I imagine they were better off. A couple of the key figures who had been running this homeschool, after a fashion, had nervous breakdowns as it fell apart. One died a couple of years after. That was that, apart from an angry mother phoning me afterward at my parents' house where I still lived for supposedly lying to her daughter about being straight. She thought this was a thinly veiled attempt to confuse her daughter as to the facts of what had happened in her homeschool school. Rose's daughter, who was in her late teens, had reached out and told me it was shameful these fundies who ran the homeschool she attended had been homophobic enough to fire me just for being gay. And so I told her the truth. The thing about me being gay was a big bigoted lie. The lying liar had molestation problems in his immediate circle. This caused a big bigoted fuss, apparently, in those circles. I looked inside, and I didn't have it in me to care much. I was deep in depression and kind of shell-shocked from everything that had gone on recently in my 22-year-old life. This, apparently, was Christianity. You could sneak out on your own repressive church to see how much freedom and lack of drama the other Christians were enjoying, and apparently it was like this out there. Did every Christian group have children getting molested and problems dealing with the facts of this? Were all the churches fighting over people being gay or not? It seemed like it. I'd never had much faith to begin with in the magic power of simply going to a church other than the one that was my birth culture. I couldn't discern God wanting it. I'd never had any faith in the magic power of atheism to save me either. And I was rapidly running out of faith in the possibility of continuing with the Christian culture that was my birthright, yet also somehow keeping some form of connection to a God they didn't seem to know anything about. I attended emptily, not feeling like God wanted it, but terrified of getting kicked out as one of the wicked people and shunned with all the rest. In social circles, once the consensus decides you are or are not something, functionally, that is the only role you will be allowed to play. I was pinned like a butterfly to a display board. I was stuck. I had to watch it all play out. It was going nowhere good. I started listening to Pink Floyd. Alice Cooper and Black Sabbath and feeling a bit guilty about that. I found all the fervently promised sincere Satanism as utterly lacking from mainstream rock music as it had been from comic books and Dungeons and Dragons. I continued writing songs that showed the influence of what I was listening to. I started occasionally going to movies and live music. I knew I was very much on the right road to getting excommunicated from my church and feared that more than anything. But I thought it was a lie to not do things I wanted to and felt were fine and natural, things I didn't think God had any problem with but my church did. The more seriously my church demanded everything about it be taken, the more ridiculous and transparent it all began to seem to me. I had nowhere else to go, though, and didn't want to lose my faith. I'd tried to connect to Christians from other churches, 
and had pretty much immediately gotten churched over hard. What was God's part in all of this? My Radio Shack computer had been stolen in my last year of school, so I typed my songs as I wrote them into Dad's and started sequencing them into the concept album. I lived with my parents, and I worked a landscaping job that let me buy some gear. I didn't know musicians, so I started buying bargain basement used musical instruments and gear and learning how to use it. This eventually proved part of getting myself out of the existential hole I felt I was in. At the time, I didn't really know why I was so driven to write and record albums. But I'm getting ahead of myself. First came the realization of where I was, how impossible it seemed that I'd ever get out of there, and what that was like. The song was about nothing more than the depressing fact that I was here, that it was really like this. As to the music, I approached it a bit differently. I didn't do the usual hacking away at the acoustic guitar strummy strummy thing. I was wanting to do something cinematic, as in movie soundtrack, more than four on the floor pretend rock band. Naturally, when I'd written it, I just had voice and guitar. to sound fairly different from just that and not necessarily rock and roll at all. I didn't get a drummer, oddly deciding that I wanted some kind of colossal, glacial, crashing sound made by treating the sound of drums I would play myself. And I wanted to conjure the image of being deep underground with enormous, crashing, thudding sounds coming from somewhere above. I didn't really know Bjork at the time, but afterward, people suggested maybe I was reaching after the kind of thing she might do. I didn't have a bass player lined up and wondered if maybe this song wouldn't need one. One reason was that this was the first song I really tried focusing on a lot of layered vocal melodies at the time, rather than it being a matter of me mostly adding them more recently over top of a conventional arrangement. I wanted them to be more than ghostly, angelic harmonies in the distant background. I was finding my way and learning what I could do. There was this 90s idea that every song had a raspy-voiced, shirtless, yarling frontman filled with charisma and vocal tricks bleeding emotion out of his grungy, phlegmy vocal cords. I was ill-equipped to provide any of that and was wondering if I could manage to do songs in which I sang really, really softly, gently, thoughtfully, and soberly and if that would work somehow too. Conventional wisdom was that it would be incredibly tedious to listen to. Having been kicked out of my church as a wicked person and shunned for life for writing a parody of one of their outreach pamphlets by this time, I had started trying out an evening Bible study of sorts in the city, another attempt to bring non-brethren Christians into my social life. It was a small group of intelligent and talented middle-aged people 15 or 20 years older than me. Most had been heavily involved in church groups or even started their own, but had watched all that slowly fall apart under their hands. All had stories of getting treated fairly terribly by their fellow Christians, particularly the sort of Christians who hang on to their own love of Jesus white-knuckled with both hands and stab anyone in the eye who says or does anything that harshes their church buzz. Most of these church refugees had failed to build solid, lasting relationships. Many were highly trained musicians and had once written songs and had been in bands, but most didn't really do music anymore. 
Even the two married couples showed signs they wouldn't be married for much longer. They all had jobs they didn't like and mostly just worked them. Most had never had children. They were kind and patient with me, but I'm sure I seemed annoyingly young, curious, naive, and self-focused. They were comparatively jaded, worn down, over and done with almost everything I was wanting my first crack at. A few had awkward, unrequited crushes on one another. They were amusing, wry, and cynical, and couldn't help arguing about almost everything, but also seemed to be getting quite tired of and over-familiar with each other, as well as those tired, old arguments they were having, often about Christian stuff I wanted to discuss too. It felt suspiciously like an early glimpse into my own possible future. The Bible study group soon divided as my church had, and years later, my medieval sword-fighting class would, between people who wanted it to be deep, grounded, intellectually challenging, and at least aware of age-old thinking, and people who insisted it be light and fun all the time and not get deep or serious because that would ruin it somehow. It could be seen in what books each recommended I read. The one subgroup had read many books and recommended one's elevating ideas. The other had read far fewer and recommended one's elevating feelings. The former picked at their faith like a scab that troubled them. The latter claimed to be positively filled with a euphoric desire to share their faith with people, but really, really didn't do that, mostly because the people then might have had stuff of their own to say in response, which always has a way of thwarting that urge. I got a front row seat on the profound damage supposedly positive people who criticize everything they think is negative often do to unsuspecting groups of which they are a part. Experience their grinning social mayhem, their unspoken, unnegotiable needs. Like always, once the thing tore itself in half, there soon wasn't anything much left. Before this, though, I spent some time with various of the people there. Like I said, they were very kind to me. Julian had a subterranean deep voice with a British accent, played classical piano, watched Babylon 5 like I did, it's still coming out with new seasons at that time. I have a baritone voice, which is a deeper range than one normally hears singing lead vocal on things, and I have been compared to Brad Roberts of Crash Test Dummies pretty much every single time I've ever taken the stage for as long as I can remember. I don't even have to go... Once there was this kid who got into an accident and couldn't come to school, but when he finally came back... Unlike me, Julian was a bass singer. He had a whole range that went deeper than I could comfortably hit. If I stunt cast Julian in a song, I thought I could add a new, lower dimension of vocal sounds that I could do myself. I'd be in the middle range of the vocal performances, not way down miles below the ladies. Julian probably wanted to sing mainly melody or play piano or something for me, but I wanted him to do some kind of Gregorian chant or Tibetan throat singing thing. I was thinking it would be like him replacing the bass line or filling in for the left hand on an organ. In the studio, we got Julian to hit the lowest note he could hit in the right key and had him hold a mic to his throat right over his vocal cords instead of singing into it normally. I can just about hit that note, but it sounds very strained, with no chest resonance at all. Julian then suggested that maybe he could sing the third or the fifth of the same chord. 
and tried that. delighted. The song was increasingly taking shape as some kind of gothy medieval thing. This was long before Peter Jackson put out his epic Trainwreck Hobbit trilogy, so I didn't have the cool song with the dwarves singing to use as a guide, the, the one about Far over the misty mountains cold To dungeons deep and caverns old Not about things that Bilbo Baggins hates. At this time, I knew an alternative band who had a lovely young woman named Tanya in it. The male singer wanted to date my sister. I wanted to record Tanya. Tanya was a 90s dream girl, a willowy, classically trained violinist who tended to wear docks and play violin in punk and hard rock bands of the shoegazer variety, a sweep of shining chestnut hair shrouding her face and falling nearly to her waist as she swayingly played her violin, gazing at her shoes deep in her musical trance. Tanya came into the studio and immediately worked out that the thing to do in this song was to lay down slow, weepy, swooping kind of violin parts. Again, I was delighted. This work was going on a few years before Peter Jackson's Fellowship of the Ring even came out, so I didn't have a terribly focused view of exactly what I wanted, but I knew the lyrics were about crashing sounds and subterranean misery. My sister had done horror movie screams in bitterness, and I wondered if a male scream or shout or bellow or something could work. I can't really do that, and Bill was around, so we asked him, Bill, do you think you could scream bloody murder like you're being killed or something? Bill said, yeah, sure, no problem. So we put him in the booth in front of a mic. We thought Bill might want to do a practice scream or two or let us get our levels and say if we thought it was working, but he just said, roll it. And so we did. <laughs> First take. So we just kept it. I could never do that with my voice. A control thing, no doubt. I tried an organ part. And a piano part. Once I was recording my music at home years later, Fellowship of the Ring came out, and I decided what I wanted for the bridge to this song was something like the elves at Rivendell, or on the way to the Grey Havens or something might do, to add a contrasting, lighter, more hopeful part in the middle. So I bought a penny whistle and tried that for the first time, working that cheap but cheerful sound as if I knew how to play one. And I had my sister sing the bridge for me, replacing my original vocal. There are holes that you're in that put holes. 
with one of her own. should I say, about 15 of her own. I layered a lot of takes of her until she was sick of me wanting takes to try to get the sound I was looking for. Like usual, she thought she sounded positively terrible. Now, every time I have played anyone my music and they've heard my sister's voice or Mindy's for even a moment, they have generally gotten very excited and explained to me that really, the smart thing to do would be to make the girls the singers instead of me. Hard to explain, that we're not in a band. Neither one is waiting around for me to write songs for her to sing. They can write their own. And my stuff is irredeemably me, rather than very them. Very narrow audience for people who want to sing or listen to what I do. Often, when my sister sings on my stuff, I have to try to sing what I need her to do and have her replace my falsetto vocals with her own. So I mock up something like... She does. There are holes that are in that put holes in you. There are holes where you bored, and there are that you choose. You'd better This is the first song, chronologically, not an album sequence, that I went nuts with the harmonies and also tried out the Pink Floyd-style tape loop effect on, fascinated with how a repeated sung note interacted with chords changing behind it when it stayed the same. I took my laptop into the music room at the high school where I was then working and played some chimes into it too. Drummer Chris Medcalf gave me a pair of mallets he wasn't using anymore, and I did cinematic cymbal rolls with them at my apartment, having walked over to the park where Chris was playing baseball to get them. I'm sure that living in neighboring apartments to mine over the years has often been annoying and surreal. Some thunder and rain sound effects, even though it doesn't rain underground, and I had something I was okay with. Compared to most of the other music, in which I'm pretending I have an M in a rock band that wants to do music with me, when really I'm a guy with some song lyrics in a guitar case and some gear at home, this song was far simpler and had a whole lot less going on, but wasn't simply my voice and an acoustic guitar either. school. 